You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and investors are anxiously waiting for the results of the Georgia Senate race. The outcome could impact everything from big tech to energy stocks to banks and infrastructure. We will break it all down. Plus, Morgan Stanley says the Fed will announce tapering this year, and one prominent Fed member says it's on the table. Could it lead to a taper tantrum like it did in 2013? And is Bitcoin's rally just a repeat of 2017? One expert says it's different this time because of the big money. He'll join us, but we start with the markets this hour. Mike Santoli has more on that. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, markets moving uh, kind of in lockstep all across the indexes, up about half a percent. Guess what? Yesterday they were down about a percent and a half, pretty much in uh, in harmony. Shows you we're regaining about a third of yesterday's losses. Look at the S&P 500, though, over the last few months. This little shakeout we got yesterday didn't really disturb what's been going on for at least a month or so. December 4th closed at 3699. January 4th closed at 3700. Under the surface, there's been a lot of churn, a lot of stocks actually down a fair bit from their high. So maybe this has just been a refreshing consolidation or a start of a new choppy phase. Take a look here at energy and materials. This stuff's moving. Uh, obviously, crude's higher above $50 a barrel WTI, OPEC meeting. But also, there's been a global reflationary sentiment out there, inflation expectations going up. And you do have all commodities running, especially miners uh, related to gold and silver. And then take a look at the Treasury yields. It's part of the same story. As you know, Kelly, really good ISM number this morning is nudging these yields higher. 10-year yield, uh, 0.96. This was your high back in November, about 0.98 as a close. So pretty much that trend remains intact as well. That 0.96%. I mean, that was a scorching number. So we're definitely going to be watching that. Mike, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Mike Santoli. Today's runoff election in Georgia has turned into one of the most expensive Senate races in history. Let's get to Elon Moy now with a look at the industries and companies that are pouring money into this high stakes election. Elon? Well, Kelly, the numbers really are staggering. If you add up how much the candidates themselves had raised and then add in all the outside money, the total amount that has been spent on these two races is over $880 million, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. So let's break that number down. Here's how much was donated directly to the candidates. The GOP incumbent Senator David Perdue has raised $89 million, but his challenger, John Ossoff, has pulled in a whopping $138 million. Meanwhile, Republicans Senator Kelly Leffler has received $92 million, compared to Democrat Raphael Warnock with $124 million. Now, the industries that are driving those numbers are also very different. For Democrats, the top sectors are education, law firms, and tech companies. For Republicans, it's all about real estate companies and investment firms, though interestingly, the healthcare sector has been a major donor to both parties. Now, when you start to look at some of the outside money, the dynamics start to change because most of that has been deployed on behalf of the Republicans. The National Association of Realtors and the American Bankers Association together have spent millions of dollars in support of Senator Perdue. And then, of course, there's the Georgia Victory Fund, which is set up to help uh, Senator Leffler's campaign. Her husband, Jeffrey Sprecher, who runs the New York Stock Exchange, is one of the major donors there. And that fund has spent $18 million on her race. Kelly. You know, it's interesting to dwell on each of these sometimes, Elon. I mean, the National Association of Realtors pouring money in uh, than the bank, more, more in than the banking group. Um, what are you hearing or what do we know at this point about how this may be tilting the outcome? And, uh, you know, where are we right now on what many people have been calling a coin toss? 
Yeah, you would think that the money would go where the winning candidate might be, but it's really not clear that all of the money that's sloshing around here is going to make a difference at the end of the day. What we saw in the general election back in November was that Democrats outspent Republicans almost two to one. Overall, Democrats spent about uh, $6.9 billion compared to Republicans spending $3.8 billion. But the blue wave that Democrats spent all that money in hoping to achieve, it didn't materialize. They won the White House, but they lost some seats in the House. And now we're down to this coin toss in the Senate. So it is unclear what the return on investment for all of this money might be. It's true. It was a big uh, reflection point uh, since already for the last several weeks. Elon, we appreciate it. We'll check back in with you soon. Elon Moy is watching the Senate race for us. For more on what's at stake as Georgia tallies his votes, I'm joined now by James Pathakoukas. He's economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor. Jimmy, you had a great note the other day that really boiled it down uh, because a lot of people have been looking past this event, interestingly. I mean, yes, it's getting a lot of play, but at the same time, maybe not as much as you would think, given that you know we have the Senate hanging in the balance. Um, tell us what you think some of the kind of big difference uh, differences might be based on who retains control i'll tell you if uh republicans you know win one of these seats and they maintain control of the senate then i think the biggest macro thing accomplished by congress for 2021 already just happened that would be the 900 billion dollar stimulus i don't think anything will happen over the next two years that will be anywhere close to as important as that stimulus. I'm extremely skeptical of any kind of grand bargain between Biden and, and, and Mitch McConnell, even on things like infrastructure, maybe something, but I just don't think it's gonna be that big. On the other hand, Democrats take those seats and now all of a sudden you have kind of the, the mini blue wave situation reemerges. Then listen, you're talking, you're talking probably another stimulus package, you know, maybe that's you know, 500, $600 billion, still a lot of money, uh, you're, you're talking, you're, you're talking some tax hikes, uh, not through the roof, but you know, not insignificant tax hikes and, uh, probably a pretty big infrastructure plan. Those are two, I think, starkly different outcomes. Yeah. And so as you put it, you know, it's the difference between tax hikes and no tax hikes, public option or no public option, section 230 reform or no reform, big infrastructure, maybe no infrastructure stimulus or no more stimulus. Do markets care more about, uh, you know, tax hikes or stimulus? That's also the question kind of hanging in the balance here. It's one of these events that I guess between the closeness of the outcome and just how big those policy moves could be over time, it's going to take markets some time to digest this. Are we even going to know tonight who the winner is? Well, well certainly what, if it's a repeat of what we saw in November, we have many hours days uh, of if it's if, it, if it's going to be that close and it very well might be that close so right it may take some time to digest it but i think listen no matter which way it goes even if democrats take uh this take these two seats it's still a very narrow senate and a very narrow house so who is sort of the, who will be sort of that median democratic senator well listen it's going to be somebody it's going to be somebody like uh kristen Sienema in arizona mark kelly Joe Manchin, that is going to prevent some of these kind of wilder ideas, you know, totally getting rid of all the Trump tax cuts, taking the corporate tax rate up to 35 percent, the total Green New Deal. That, that kind of wilder stuff, I think, is off the table either way. Still, what could change is significant. 
Yeah. And finally, who do you think? I mean, again, just watching so the polls for whatever they're worth, the predicted odds, you know, Twitter. <laughs> what is your spidey Nothing's sense more telling you what Twitter uh, is about? Saying. I think we can acknowledge that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what, you, what feeling are you getting uh, here? Uh, you know, as we've seen some of the really long lines, the heavy turnout, um, and maybe some questions about how strong the turnout will be on the GOP side. Right. Uh, from everything I hear, Democrats are not confident they're going to win this. Uh, I realize some, I, I realize the 538 polls show Democrats doing better. Um, I just I think that especially after what just happened, everyone's going to be super cautious about predicting uh, a Democratic win here. And listen, I'm, you know, I, I thought the betting markets did pretty good, uh, you know, two months ago. Uh, they show the Republicans winning. And I, I, you know, I think that's, that's not, a, to me, that's not an insignificant data point, but pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Uh, that does seem where we are this afternoon. It could be exciting to watch it come in. Jimmy, thank you so much. James but- Bethacoukas from AEI. So who stands to benefit from the possible outcomes for Senate control? My next guest is here to say which sectors could win big if the GOP retains control and which would be better off with a Democratic sweep. Joining me now is Chris Senek. He's Wolf Research Chief Investment Strategist. And Chris, it's very interesting to juxtapose what you're about to say with what Elon just told us. So, for instance, tech has been one of the industries pouring money in on the Democratic side of the race. Uh, However, under what you're saying, tech could actually do better if the GOP retains control. Explain. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, tech stocks have been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the prolific Fed liquidity that we've seen uh, since the COVID crisis began. And um, if the Dems win both seats, expectations will rise markedly for a big physical stimulus program. And that big physical stimulus program benefits, we think, some of the more beaten up areas uh, of, of the market, and in particular value stocks, uh, regional banks, because uh, yields will likely back up into spending concerns and higher debt. And so, um, and, and furthermore, potential tax increases could cause investors to sell some of the biggest winners um, since the pandemic began. So let's go through this one at a time. Uh, we can show what you think in, are the outcomes here if the GOP holds the Senate. For uh, investing style, you think growth. And again, I think some of this would be counterintuitive to people. If you say if the GOP holds the Senate, the investing style is growth. Rates are range-bound. The sector winners are big tech, uh, managed care. Yes, or the oil sector makes more sense. You say, you know, on the flip side, if Democrats take control, and you were just alluding to this, then value wins. The yield curve steepens. And regional banks, you know, those could do better. Yes, you know, green energy, electric vehicles, a little bit less surprising. But, you know, explain what the difference is here. Yeah, it's really the toggle between physical policy and the Fed, right? So if, um, as your prior guest alluded to, if the GOP holds the Senate, they're going to be very stingy in terms of physical stimulus. They're only going to do if they really need it and the economy slows. And so who's going to make up for that will be the Fed. So the Fed, we think, if the GOP holds both seats or one seat, will likely upsize their asset purchase program sometime in the first quarter. That favors the bubble-type, high-valuation growth stocks uh, led by the NASDAQ 100. Uh, healthcare will be a relief rally because there won't be any big changes with healthcare, in particular managed care. On the other hand, um, if the Dems take both seats and we have so-called blue wave, we expect expectations for physical to increase markedly. Uh, yields are likely to back up. Uh, Seabury yield curve benefits regional banks. 
Uh, there'll likely be an infrastructure bill at some point, or there'll be part and parcel of a bigger bill. Green and clean will work uh, as, as well as part of that. And, um, you know, people probably will sell the traditional energy refiners and, and stocks that are up uh, into high oil prices today. So it's about the Fed versus physical to- being the driver underneath the surface. Yeah, 100%. And again, to mention a lot of this would be kind of the knee jerk reaction. I'm sure, you know, as we move throughout the year and different um, levers are pulled that there, you know, there are other reasons why you might want exposure to some of these areas. So, you know, for instance, thinking through the ISM number this morning, which without any other stimulus, you know, on tap, you wonder, you know, how much more the Fed would need to do. I mean, could you see a scenario or or even uh, fiscal will need to do so could you see a scenario in which, you know, we could get a yield curve steepening either way, you know, even if it's a GOP uh, control. We could. And that's the risk, you know, with, with some of the, these high multiple stocks here is we do have a, a rate scare. Now, we think the Fed is going to try to contain rates and below that kind of 1% 10-year yield magical level if they can. And there's methods they can do that with yield curve control or doing a twist type strategy um, in, in, in a meeting uh, later in the spring. Um, and remember, there's 1.5 trillion of excess savings out there. And so we could have a scenario, even without additional stimulus, where the economy in late spring, early summer is really humming along, and that could favor all types of stocks. But I do think that would probably be more of a value rally if the Dems uh, take both seats uh, in the Georgia elections. All right. Chris Senek, thank you, sir. Uh, with some picks for Thanks, each outcome that we could see as we tally the votes tonight. Chris Senek of Wolf Research. If you're looking for more stock picks, CNBC Pro has BTIG's favorite names for 2021. They include the likes of Uber and Lordstown Motors. You can get the full list at cnbc.com slash pro. We have a news alert on OPEC now. Brian Sullivan joins us by phone. What's going on, Brian? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, and if I have to pop off because I'm on the uh, OPEC press conference virtually, of course, right now, the Saudis shocking everybody and announcing a one million barrel a day surprise cut. Uh, the Saudi minister, Prince Abdulaziz, joked at the beginning that he had a surprise for the meeting, and he wasn't kidding. So they're, they're coming out, they're cutting by an additional million barrels a day. Now, others will be increasing production, but oil is soaring right now. Oil stocks are soaring right now. Nobody saw this coming. I mean, OPEC generally, there's leaks all the time, and we tend to report on things that are that are being whispered about. It's a lot harder to do that virtually, Kelly. We are seeing the price of oil, which is up 5% right now. The, the XOP ETF is up 8%. The XLE is up 6%. Some of the more heavily shorted names up 9 and 10% as well. So the Saudis doing this unilaterally, meaning they did it on their own, they called it a basically a gift to show solidarity. And uh, in fact, the, the Russian minister called it a a New Year's gift, and actually briefly smiled. That if you know Alexander Novak, the deputy prime minister, that's a rarity because they're going to increase production slightly along with Kazakhstan. But the Saudis, a big cut, shocking the market. Um, little OPEC New Year surprise, Kelly. Brian, it's kind of hard to believe that Saudi Arabia would willingly cut a million barrels of its own output and just uh, say, yeah, it's a gift to the world. Happy New Year. I mean, maybe they look to the oil price reaction. We have WTI uh, above $50 for the first time since February. Uh, But Brent obviously would be more of their focus. But maybe they look at the oil price and think they're going to make up, you know, the declines in the price. It just seems like there has to be more to the story. There is more to the story, as always. And I'm going to get a little deep here very quickly. Again, I may have to hop off. Remember this. Okay, the Russians want to increase production in part because 
they are angry at the United States and certain senators for opposing their Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is going to be a huge conduit of natural gas to Germany. Leading the charge against the Nord Stream is one Senator Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is from where? Texas. So it's not OPEC versus Texas. It might be Russia versus the Texas slash Ted Cruz because he's been so vocally opposed. The point is, Russia doesn't mind gaining market share, increasing production, even if they have to drive the price down because, A, they want the market share, but, B, it's also kind of a message, if you will, to the United States that they don't mind shoving it a little bit in the nose of the U.S. and sort of our oil interests as well. I think the Saudis have to play it a little more delicately, especially with the incoming Biden administration. So the Russians get what they want. They get to raise production by... I think it's 120,000 barrels a day, while the Saudis can sort of look to the United States and say, look what we did. We're trying to keep prices semi-firm. So kind of a masterful political move by the Saudis as well, the Russians, one Mr. Ted, Senator Ted Cruz as well. There's a lot going on, as always, in OPEC. It is truly a geopolitical mystery of epic proportions, but the Saudis are the ones pulling out the, you know, the Professor Plum in the, in the library with the candlestick by dropping that million barrel a day cut on the market, which nobody expected, and stocks and oil are flying. They are. We're showing Exxon up 7%, BP up 8.5%. The ETF is up 7 8% at this point. Chevron, Conoco, we just showed Occidental. The Marathon's up 13%. Uh, wow, the, some pretty big news. Brian, thank you so much for bringing it to us, and keep us posted if you get more on that call. Or Brian Sullivan yep. with the latest on OPEC and Saudi's surprising decision to cut production by a million barrels a day. We'll keep tabs on that. Coming up, to trim or not to trim, the Fed's massive bond buying program could see a slowdown this year as economic activity improves. ISM manufacturing hitting a two and a half year high today. How will the market react? We'll ask Morgan Stanley's chief economist. Plus, the NYSE reversing its decision to delist three China telco stocks in a move that some are calling confusing and even bizarre. What happened and what's it telling us? We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The ISM manufacturing gauge jumped in December to its highest level since August of 2018. It was above 60. It's adding more support to expectations of a V-shaped recovery. It comes as Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic says the Fed could start trimming its bond buying program as early as this year. How likely is a taper this year and will it lead to another tantrum? Joining me now is Ellen Zentner. She's chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Ellen, it's great to see you again. What's your base case expectation for any kind of tapering right now? So I think that definitely President Bostic is still in the minority uh, at the FOMC, uh, but definitely expressing more optimism, uh, especially as we've seen the efficacy uh, of the vaccine now, uh, even with some bottles of it being rolled out on time here in the beginning of that process. And so I think at some point, certainly by the middle of this year, we would expect policymakers uh, to sort of coalesce around uh, firming up those discussions of when should they start tapering. Uh, And so we think that they'll start tapering in the beginning of 2022, which means signaling it at the December meeting. And certainly depending on how the vaccine plays out and how the economic activity rebounds on the other side of that uh, can certainly shade that by a month or two in either direction. So to me, Bostick's comments were not that inconsistent 
with what uh, the market is currently expecting in terms of the timing of tapering. What struck me as very surprising was that uh, he said he wanted to get back to a pre-COVID balance sheet in short order. And it's the pace of that tapering Hmm. that I think would be very surprising. I mean, it seems impossible that they'll ever be back to a pre-COVID balance sheet, Ellen, let alone in short order. And and Loretta Mester of the Cleveland Fed did come out and say she's not expecting uh, a reduction in bond buying until next year. So you can see this this battle is already starting to play out. We are seeing interest rates slightly on the rise, you know, with the 10-year today, again, emphasize slightly up to about 96 basis points or so. What would happen if uh, markets started to sniff out that maybe the Fed's going to be under some pressure to turn the dial back more quickly? So I think for the for the Fed, the balance sheet is going to actually be very important in terms of anchoring those rate hike expectations. They have to not only begin tapering the balance sheet, but finish that process well before they begin raising rates. That's the order of operations that is is currently uh, in the framework of, of the Fed. Uh, and so how long they want to take to taper the balance sheet, when they want to start to tapering the balance sheet, you know, that means that they can start to take their foot off the gas pedal, to use a favorite uh, phrase of, of uh, former Fed Chair Yellen's, take their foot off the gas pedal, but still control rates and rate expectations because the market's going to not be willing to price in rate hikes until they actually finish tapering. And so I think that separation between balance sheet operations and rate hikes is very important for the Fed to maintain. And I do feel like the market remembers the lesson learned from the taper tantrum, as does the Fed. And I do think that they can successfully separate the two. Well, there, you know, you're right in that sense, but it still is going to be a tough dance, I, I guess, to pull off smoothly uh, for the next year or two. So the real question, I guess, becomes how do they respond uh, if the market seems displeased with that, right? You know, what's more important? Making sure there's not a, a, t- a policy mistake of prematurely tightening, which we think is the bigger takeaway from this Fed, or making sure that we're not creating, you know, bigger problems with asset bubbles and you know, stock market valuations and other, you know, asset prices being where they are today, you know, is that something that that they would be willing or need to lean against? Yeah, so I think I think you're you're getting right at the heart of it, Kelly, because this is going to be a struggle for them over the next couple of years in terms of how they communicate around this. You know, there there is the idea out there that the Fed will not allow uh, long term interest rates to rise because they want to keep financial conditions easy. Uh, they want to continue to uh, affect as uh, robust a recovery as possible in order to meet that inflation goal, their unemployment goal. Uh, but the idea that they can't let the 10-year rise at all uh, is just uh, false. Uh, you know, the 10-year yields should be rising if you have a stronger economy, stronger fundamental backdrop. It means that yields can increase without hampering growth in the economy. Uh, and so naturally, expectations for tapering uh, should come forward. Naturally, rate hikes expectations should come forward as we start to bear the fruits of our labor in terms of getting the vaccine rolled out, seeing that rebound on the other side of that and being convinced it will continue. And so the Fed has to have a certain yeah. amount of appetite for rates to rise. They just can't rise too much too quickly for the Fed or else they'll have to continue to communicate and talk down both the financial stability risks and the risks of rates rising too soon. 
It's a great point. You know, we knew we were going to see this tension play out this year. I just didn't think it would start this soon on January 5th. Uh, but here we are. Ellen, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Ellen Zentner is with Morgan Stanley. Coming up, this ain't 2017. We're going to look at why the recent rally in Bitcoin is different now than it was back then and what the money flows are telling us about what happens next. Plus, a more than 400% rally last year just isn't enough for Stiefel. Why they think Peloton has more room to run even if the pandemic ends. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're looking at a Dow uh, up near the highs of the session, up 139 versus the 166 session high. Half percent gains after yesterday's declines. Take a look at the sectors, though. Uh, Only two are in the red right now. Consumer staples down a third of a percent. But leading the way is energy, up nearly 7 percent right now. Just had some big news out of Saudi Arabia and OPEC. Saudi saying it's going to be cutting about a million barrels a day of production. We spoke to Brian Sullivan about that. The whole sector, the stocks, uh, are flying. Crude is up sharply as well. Let's take a look at some of the individual movers. We've got shares of First Solar lower on a double downgrade to sell from buy at Goldman today. They're citing concerns that earnings and profit margins are peaking and more cyclical headwinds to the business are ahead. FSLR is down about 8%. It is up 85% in the past six months. And shares of Alibaba are higher. Our sources telling David Faber that Jack, founder Jack Ma is lying low but not missing. There's been a lot of speculation about his whereabouts after a speech he gave criticizing China's regulators in late October. Uh, Alibaba is up about 5% right now. And shares of Pulte Group are lower on a downgrade to underperform at Bank of America on valuation and increased affordability concerns. Hearing a lot more about that lately. Pulte down 2.5%. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC COVID update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. A new study from Pfizer says just under 47 million Americans have gotten COVID-19. That's more than twice the number of confirmed cases, but still far short of what is needed for herd immunity. Israel will begin its third national lockdown to slow the spread of the pandemic. This despite a very aggressive vaccination program that has already vaccinated more than a tenth of their population. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says the pandemic is now more serious than at any time since the spring. She is urging Scots to abide by the national lockdown and stay home. She also told President Trump not to come to Scotland to play golf during Joe Biden's inauguration. She was responding to reports that the Glasgow airport had been told to expect the arrival of a U.S. military plane previously used by the president. We are not... uh allowing people to come into Scotland for, uh, without an essential purpose right now. And that would apply to him just as it applies to anybody uh, else. And uh, coming to play golf is not what I would consider to be an essential purpose. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Sue, thank you very much, Sue Herrera. Coming up, the NYSE reversing course and allowing three Chinese companies to continue trading despite the U.S. government's request. Some are calling the move bizarre. We're going to dig into it as all the China stocks are uh, high flyers today as a result. Plus, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Amazon. We'll talk about what's going on there and the battle of the bike versus the mirror. It's on Rapid Fire in just a moment. 
Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should also be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Dear Jabosa, Bob Bassani, and Julia Borston. Welcome, everybody. First up is sticking with Peloton. Stiefel says the future is promising for Peloton even after gyms open back up. They're saying they expect robust post-pandemic growth for what they're calling the world's first global fitness platform. They also like the pre-core acquisition. The stock is shaking off yesterday's weakness. It's still up five-fold in the past year. They give it a 160 price target. Deirdre, it's at 147 today. Yeah, and Kelly, this is all about sort of introducing this new way of working out, this digital acceleration that is led to the rise of these connected fitness apps. Kelly, I just even tried the yoga part of the Peloton and was pretty pleased with it. So there's like a lot to discover. And one of the most interesting stats from its rise is how often people are using the app because it sort of breaks it up into bite-sized pieces. So it's not surprising that the brokerage says that there's room to run, but I am actually a little bit more interested in one that it's adding, a buy rating to a room. And this is the digital used car dealership that uses AI to um, improve its efficiency, just did an acquisition to further go down that road. So um, this is all about the themes that we've been talking about, Kelly, for the last year indeed, which is that digital acceleration, which Peloton and Vroom are certainly a part of. Yeah, used cars are hot. We know that, Bob. Oh, dear. Where do I start here? So they say they're expecting robust pan-pandemic growth for the world's first global fitness platform. So where were we? We were $20 on this stock in March. What are we now, Kelly? 145 Five, six times? You think they figured that out? Maybe. And maybe people are going to stay home forever, but maybe some people like me are going to go back to their gyms in 2021. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe not use your Pelotons as much. Maybe they'll be profitable someday. They're not right now, but next year they're supposed to be maybe 50 cents or so. So what are they, 145 divided by 50? Gee, 270 times forward earnings. But don't worry, the revenues are expected to grow. Am I being curmudgeonly about this? It's a bargain. No, but, and, I, and Bob, I, I think it, Bob. It's, it's not even so much about do people keep using the Peloton, but do they keep adding new customers at the same rate that they're adding them this year, Julia? Well, I think one really interesting place to look for that, uh, Kelly, is the deal with Precore. This Precore deal not only enables them to ramp up their production and also start making different types of products, but also Precore has relationships with fitness clubs, hotels, universities, and other commercial partners. And this could be a great way for Peloton to expand there as well. I would say, just to add to, to Bob's curmudgeonliness, there's also the question of what kind of role Apple's fitness app will play into this. I'm with Deirdre and that I love the Peloton fitness offerings. I've done the yoga, I've done the cardio, but the question is, will Apple's Fitness Plus be a real rival to that? I'm Great enjoying point. my free prenatal Agreed. yoga videos on YouTube, by the way. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wealth of offerings there, too. All right, let's move along. Let's talk about this major move out of the New York Stock Exchange today. It's a big about face. They're no longer going to delist three Chinese telecom giants. This reverses a decision that was made just last week. The original move was in compliance with an executive order signed by the president barring American companies and individuals from investing in firms allegedly aiding the Chinese military. Well, the NYSE now announcing it's dropping these plans after further consultation with relevant regulatory authorities. You can see the telecom companies up 8 to 12 percent on the news. Shares of other companies like J.D. Bob are also flying. 
Well, is this an embarrassment to the New York Stock Exchange or what? Now, I, I have to give them a little s- slack here because what actually happened here? There was an order by the president and the Treasury Department is issuing regulations. So obviously what seems to have happened here is they have decided now that these three companies actually don't fall under the regulations anymore. Okay, that's fair. But why did they figure that out before they decided to delist them? That's, that's the embarrassment. And the obvious answer is the regulations are so vague, so hard to figure out, so difficult to interpret that not even the lawyers at the New York Stock Exchange working with the Treasury could figure that out. This is a, 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 a bit of a black eye for the NYC, but it's also a, a sign that it's very difficult to actually set up regulations that are clear and that everybody understands what the rules are. Yeah, and, and, and also, Kelly, Deirdre, can I, I, can I be a connection the Chinese, around also? Yeah, the, the ownership, yeah, the ownership angle, I was just going to say on this, I think is part of the issue. So if you say, okay, you can't own or invest in uh, companies that are, what is the wording, tied to the Chinese military, involved with the Chinese military? And we all can probably <laughs> right. also guess what's going on here. Pressure from China. I mean, let's not forget that they were already talking about ways of retaliating to that move, Deirdre. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna pick up on, uh, Bob's curmudgeon thread. And, and, and your point is exactly right, Kelly, right? I mean, China says that Huawei doesn't have any real ties to the government. It's owned by employees. Does anyone really believe that? The answer is no. But I got one number for you. $144 billion. That is how much Chinese companies have raised in the U.S. stock market over the last two decades. You think that the NYSE and NASDAQ are really going to, you know, cut off their nose to spite their face there? This is all about dollars. The combined market value of China-based companies with at least a portion of their shares traded in the U.S. right now, that's about $2 trillion. And I think that's what it comes down to, money here. Absolutely. And you have to wonder where where it's going from here. A a black eye, like you said, Bob, but also I think a sign of just how deep some of these conflicts run that we're increasingly going to have to face. And maybe they're just betting it'll be less acute under a Biden administration. All right, let's turn and talk some Amazon now, talk about what they might be up to. Go ahead. S&P today announced that they were not going to remove these three stocks from their global indexes because the New York Stock Exchange didn't do it. So you see these knock-on effects. This is the politics of indexing. You have all of these effects on these global indexes around the world. Today, S&P decides, well, we can't do that because the NYSE isn't, isn't doing it. So there's really serious consequences exactly. to all of these discussions. This is not academic discussions we're having. No, not at all. It's, it's all about the money, like Deirdre was just saying. All right, as I mentioned, Amazon up to some new uh, business. It's their first ever purchase of aircraft today. Uh, they're buying 11 planes from Delta Airlines and WestJet. These are, I think, Boeing 767s. The expansion of the Prime Air Fleet comes at a time when we're all demanding faster, cheaper delivery for all the goods being ordered online. Amazon investing big time to keep its delivery edge, putting some pressure on shares of FedEx and UPS today. What do you make of it, Julia? Well, I think this just speaks to the fact that Amazon understands that its advantage is its scale and its speed. And now it's going to be able to continue to grow and continue to hold on to the growth that it's seen through the pandemic if it can make those delivery times shorter. This is just another way to make sure that it's controlling the process. It's not reliant on other carriers that might also be delivering packages from other companies and to make sure that it can really shorten that delivery time as much as possible. Kelly, I think we've all gotten spoiled during the pandemic Thanks to these short delivery times from Amazon. And I think even as people 
go back about their lives. Maybe Bob's going to be going back to the gym, but I don't think he's going to be buying less stuff from Amazon. <laughs> Bob? Uh, that's absolutely right. And, and what you said is absolutely correct. Sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to dig beneath the surface what's really going on. But you said it right, Julia. Amazon wants to be faster and more efficient, and buying their own aircraft is the natural way to do that. This story actually is what it seems. It makes perfect sense. And... And to widen that gap with, uh, we won't talk about what the USPS experience has been like this year. Deirdre, go ahead. We'll give you the last word. I was going to say, uh, I think it all comes down to one word, and that is control. The the statement from Amazon was so telling. Having a mix of lease and own aircraft allows us yeah. to better manage our operations. Comes down to that control, that integration from top to bottom that makes Amazon so efficient and that flywheel so powerful. Yeah, and I'm sure Boeing doesn't mind either uh, that they're getting into the game in, in a bigger and bigger way. Thank you all very much. We appreciate it today. Dear Jabosa, Bob Bassani, and nice. Julia Borston for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, always fall back on winning long-term themes. That's how Jim Cramer says to approach any market sell-offs. One of his key themes for 2021 is cybersecurity. We've got his picks in the space next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Take a look at the cybersecurity ETF hack. It's up more than 80% from the March lows and amid a shift to remote work during the pandemic, Jim Cramer just made the industry one of his top 10 investment themes for this year. For a closer look at some of the stocks to watch from that list, I'm joined by Frank Holland. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. You know, cybersecurity stocks, some of the top in tech over the last month. As you mentioned, Cramer giving his top picks in the sector. CrowdStrike and Palo Alto Networks especially outperforming the broader market, even the red-hot NASDAQ. Those are part of his picks. It also includes Okta, Zscaler. Those are also outperformers. Kramer particularly citing Norton LifeLock as a stock with a strong dividend over 2%. Also said it might be a target for M&A. The tech-heavy index, however, is only up about 2% over the last month, so compared to those cybersecurity stocks. But cybersecurity's rise, not really a surprise due to recent corporate headlines. Microsoft disclosing a massive security breach with hackers accessing the company's source code in that SolarWinds hack last month, which included a breach of cybersecurity company FireEye. And in September, hospital operator UHS was hit with a ransomware attack. And throughout 2020, vaccine companies, they were just targeted by foreign hackers. Kramer adding, with so much data up there in the cloud, those cybersecurity stocks are the ones to watch and invest in for 2021. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Frank Holland, and for all of Jim's top investment themes for 2021, head on over to CNBC.com. Still ahead, Bitcoin is trying to stage a rebound after yesterday's declines. But the question on everyone's mind is whether its price these days is sustainable. Coming up, Coindesk's deaths, Michael Casey, and why the run-up has been very different this time versus three years ago. We'll dig into it. We'll tell you why. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Bitcoin is having a volatile day, but it's hanging on to about a 6% gain after getting dragged down in yesterday's sell-off. We're at 33,380, so we're near all-time highs, and it was up more than 300% in 2020. Now, that was in part to some big players buying in, from Square and PayPal to investors like Bill Miller giving his backing. JP Morgan says it could see Bitcoin hitting $146,000 as it competes with gold as an alternative asset. And the boom is even leading to mergers in the space. Coindesk announcing it's acquiring crypto data services and startup trade block. On that note, let's bring in Michael Casey. He's the chief content officer of Coindesk. Uh, Michael, we should know, and it's great to see you again. We worked you know, Thank together you. at the journal back in the day, but even the migration of journalists, the, the, professional, the professionalization of the crypto industry, right? It's remarkable. 
Yeah, absolutely. You are starting to see this, uh, you know, professional institutional body of, of interest in this. Um, it is quite, a, it's quite a change, right? I mean, we, we saw, you know, largely a retail play in this space. Uh, certainly the last time we had a boom in 2017, it was, you know, kind of mum and pop. Now it really does feel quite different. It feels like we've got institutions and, and that's exactly what, you know, Coindesk is, is positioning itself for, you know, this purchase of a, of an index uh, provider, trade block leading index and data provider in the space. Because those institutions are going to need, you know, reliable data, reliable pricing, and, and we think we, as yeah. this deeply established news organization, well placed to do it. Yeah, and I want to go over, and because you guys now are going to kind of be this repository for all this data, we're able to start combing through it a little bit and figure out some lessons and takeaways from what's going on with Bitcoin this year. And Michael, most striking to me is the fact that if you just even look at Google Trends and search volume, it's nowhere near today what it was in 2017. And some of your findings echo this, that a lot of the participation is is from the whales, really, that, that the retail side of it hasn't been the driving force lately. Yeah, we're obviously seeing as the price rises a lot of broad-based interest in the mainstream. But again, in 2017, this was largely a retail-led led phenomenon. And of course, it wasn't just Bitcoin. Everybody was piling into ICOs and Ether and everything. And so it was this kind of real mania-like broad-based experience. And what we actually saw at that time is the so-called whales, and, and they're measured in the Bitcoin space by those addresses. And the, on the Bitcoin blockchain, there were addresses that have more than a thousand Bitcoin in them. And in fact, the numbers of those small, those large addresses were, were falling at the time of the last bubble in 2017. This time, those numbers are now at record highs. Uh, at the same time, as you point out, Google Trends are not showing quite, quite the same level of engagement amongst the broad populace. So very much a, a story around big numbers, big players coming in, and that's what's driving the price, rather than this sort of broad-based kind of uh, mania, if you like. Yeah, and in fact, you guys have said that the number of active Bitcoin addresses is down from its highs, about 1.1 million or so, but it was about 1.3 back in 2017. What does all of this tell you about the nature of the run-up this time, its sustainability and, you know, the, the ownership that's been changing hands? Yeah, I mean, it certainly speaks a lot to that same story of the, of the, falling, the, the, the changing hands, right? Because if you have more a broader base of users, there's going to be a broader base of addresses. I think people, there are a lot of people who got in back in 2017 who just said, I'm not touching that thing again, right? Because they, they lost a lot of money as we came off those highs in 2018. And so now they're out and these other guys are coming in. The numbers of active addresses are rising as well, but not to those highs. I think the question of sustainability is a really interesting one, though, right? I mean, one would think that as big money comes in, there's asset allocations, there's companies like Mass Mutual that are putting funds in. Like, well, that seems to be a long-term play, and that's a very legitimate uh, view of this. But, of course, Bitcoin is always volatile. We, you know, we came off 17% just in, in a day yesterday, and now we're almost back up at those all-time highs again. Right. This is the story of this space. And I do think that there will be, traders who take advantage of this. They've got, you know, CME, uh, Bitcoin futures is a place for them to speculate. And all of that gives the opportunity to, to take profit, to short it. And so, yeah. you know, volatility is not going away. Sustainability, though, I mean, we've gone up and down, you know, so many times now. I, I think the fact that we're back up again really does give some real evidence to the idea that this is a thing, right? This is this is a thing. This is not just some flash in the pan crazy idea. Abs it, absolutely. Yeah. 
No, it, it's the professionalization. And, and again, that's why I'm struck by the number of, again, even journalists who are now covering this space. We wanted to ask you real quickly about uh, the regulation that's coming down. I mean, if you have financial authorities saying that uh, wallets need to track and anyone who's dealing in Bitcoin needs to have a name and address of, of transactions between two parties, it kind of undermines the point of Bitcoin. Jack Dorsey protested about this yesterday. Square obviously has some skin in this game, um, but it, it could be necessary uh, to comply with anti-money laundering laws. So it seems inevitable that we're going to need some track record, right? Is that going to hurt Bitcoin's adoption prospects? It's a, it's a really important question, Kelly, and it's a very big issue. In some respects, what it may speak to as well is more of this bifurcation, which I, I don't, you know, many of us don't think such such a great thing, right? We, this is supposed to be a technology that gives broad-based access that's financially inclusive. The thing about privacy is not about, you know, necessarily whether crooks can run away with it. It's about freedom, right? It's about, it's about and, and, you know, the idea of money being this important tool that people have to, uh, to, 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 you know, express themselves as much as anything else. And there are many, many, yeah. many people around the world for whom this is an important tool. So is this going to be something that institutions who comply with regulations get to dominate and keep the little guys out? Or are we going to create new tools that allow the broad base of population to participate as mm -hmm. Wall Street is currently doing? That's yeah, and maybe that's where Square can actually come in and play a role in that as well. Michael, again, very good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Best of luck. Michael Casey is with Coindesk. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.